Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Thanks for joining us today on the program, Accelerating Vaccine Timelines. Certainly it's possible. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we set out to set up the best range of vaccines we possibly could and secure way more doses uh, than Canada would technically need. Could Canadians get the vaccines more quickly than Health Canada predicts? And why will the U.S. get so many more vaccines per capita than Canada and so quickly? Today we talk about these questions and a lot more in a wide-ranging feature-length interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Also today, is the Prime Minister concerned about the massive big spending promises? We also ask him about his ethical failures in the WE controversy and his political blind spot as a leader. Focusing on, uh, on elements uh, that I think are obvious that I don't think about political consequences on. We cover all that and lots more with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today. Plus, what will he do to get the two Michaels released from the Chinese prisons? And then, the road ahead. The Scrum joins us as we break down what the Prime Minister told us about his plan for 2021 and what the challenges will be for him and for the opposition parties. Our special guest will be Tom Mulcair and pollster Nick Nanos. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So with the first arrival of vaccines in Canada, the pandemic and the political horizon, something looks a lot closer. Sometime in 2021, as millions of Canadians get the shot, the great pandemic will give way to the great recovery. And there will also likely be a federal election. The ballot box question could well be, how did the government lead you through the pandemic and who has the best plan for the recovery? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's future rests on these two questions. Are Canadians confident in the vaccine rollout strategy and does Canada have a vaccine envy problem as the US and the UK get more vaccines per capita than Canada? And what about the economy? How much is the Prime Minister willing to spend on the crisis before he has to start worrying about the deficit? Well, today we have a wide-ranging feature-length interview about these and other topics with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It took place just outside his home, that's the famous cottage at Rideau Hall where you've seen him so many times do press conferences in the last year. What does the Prime Minister say about the early but still relatively small amounts of vaccines that have arrived in Canada this month? Let's find out. Prime Minister, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you, Evan. Hard year, a strange year. It's been a tough year. Yeah, it's been a strange year. And look, we're kind of, it's a tale of two Canadas right now. It's a tale of hope and a tale of despair. Uh, let's start with the hope and the vaccines. Um, I, I, I don't even know that if it's, it's two different Canadas. Everyone's got the hope and the despair at the same time. Fair point. Um, but let's start on the hope side because why not? We got the Pfizer vaccine coming, we got the Moderna pending approval. That'll be great. Um, Health Canada says that all Canadians could be vaccinated by September 2021, but we've bought more vaccines. Is there a chance that more vaccines get approved Canada gets them, that we could actually accelerate the timeline as we've already seen it accelerated by a month. Is that possible? Uh, certainly it's possible. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we set out to set up the best range of vaccines we possibly could and secure 
way more doses uh, than Canada would technically need because we knew that some vaccines would be faster, some vaccines might be more effective or less effective than others, and we made a commitment to, to do right by Canadians, and that's why we had such a solid plan on vaccines. So things could happen quicker. Things could also happen slower if there are less efficient vaccines or production challenges in, in the companies that are delivering them. So that's a, so just for people, that date of everyone gets vaccinated by September could be earlier, maybe lower. So that's a concern, but it's a conservative estimate then. Yeah, I, okay. I, I cer well, I mean, we know that, think about it, Evan, six months ago, everyone was like, oh, I hope there'll be a vaccine, but there's no vaccine. It takes years to build vaccines. What scientists and researchers have been able to do to give us not just hope, but the knowledge that this pandemic will be over, that yes, we've still got a tough winter to go through, but the end is in sight and we just have to hold on and we'll get through it is a huge thing. It is, but, and, and I think it's great. I don't want to diminish the hope. The scientists and, and, and the distribution has been incredible, but Canada has got a very small number. And you know, in the new year, there's probably going to be a case of vaccine envy because the United States says they're going to vaccinate 20 million people by December will barely be 210,000 people, the UK also. How did they get so many more vaccines so quickly? Because that's consequential in terms of lives lost and businesses. So the numbers matter at the start. The numbers matter at the start, sure, but they matter even more in the middle and at the end. And I think when you compare with the United States, we have to remember we have a very different and much stronger healthcare system. They're going to face challenges around distributing vaccines that everyone is facing, but we do a very, very good job. The federal government working with the provinces on getting vaccines out to people. And we knew that, that working early and aggressively with the vaccine companies, which we've been on since the late spring, led us to having this position that is envied by everyone around but the it, world. But it's, but it's envied because we're quick, but I, I And because we have more potential doses per Canadian from a larger range of companies, given all the uncertainties. But they'll have vaccinated per capita 20% and we'll be at 8%. I mean, it's a... Again, Th I those I are Those are projections. Okay. Uh, we know uh, that things go quicker, things go slower, challenges come. We are, we are doing everything to secure the largest number of doses safely for Canadians as quickly as possible. Uh, and we're going to stay focused on that. Uh, just that cuts both ways. You know, uh, we did buy more per capita vaccines than almost any other country. There have been accusations from developing nations that we have practiced vaccine nationalism. We went vacuumed up all the vaccines on a vacuum on a vaccine shopping spree. What do you say to that? Is there because there's an equitable issue that Canada signed on to an issue to try to distribute mm -hmm. these equitably? Well, first of all, my job is to look out for Canadians and I will not apologize for doing a good job in establishing the right plan to vaccinate the largest number of Canadians as quickly as possible. That's my job. But at the same time, we were one of the leading founding members of the COVAX facility, which actually ensures that as we purchase vaccines, we're making vaccines available to the rest of the world. And uh, as Canada gets vaccinated, if we have more vaccines than necessary, absolutely, we will be sharing with the world. But you also have to remember that investments early on in vaccine developers helped them move quicker and better. So countries stepping up with millions of dollars to encourage a range of companies to develop these vaccines is going to leave everyone better because we don't get through this pandemic anywhere without getting through it everywhere. Let's talk about 
what happened in the last year. And I get this was unprecedented. And it's, you know, the rearview mirror is a lot easier to look through than the, than the windshield. I get it. But if you look at what we could have done better to mitigate some of the disaster, border yeah. closures, could that have happened? Um, uh, you know, better prep on PPE, earlier mask mandate. There was no national lockdown. There has been, frankly, a failure to get uh, widely available rapid tests the way other countries. Looking at all those, what now mm -hmm. would you, did you fail to do quick enough and would you have done more quickly if you could have a do-over? I think I think I would have done, we would have done PPE quicker. Um, we, we knew uh, that we had to ensure the protection of our frontline workers. I don't think we understood or, or expected to see the kind of race for PPE, uh, the international struggle for, you know, happening on the tarmac in China and elsewhere of people trying to get PPE. We ended up being okay, but there are stories of frontline health workers yeah. who had to bring their masks for home sure. and wash them. Um, that shouldn't have happened. Not border closures, oh, uh, like I wonder, because look at the, the masks, bubble was successful. Doing doing it on the, the, the doing PPE quicker would have been good, but we actually took that learning from not having been as quick as we could have on PPE in the global competition, and we applied it to vaccines, which is one of the reasons why we are better on vaccines than just about any other country. On border closures, we managed it well in terms of, of you know, people coming into Canada, and we didn't see a lot of spread on that. The real spread happened when a lot of people came back from Europe uh, or from uh, the United States at spring break. And that's when the numbers started to spike. No border closure ever keeps Canadians out of Canada. So Canadians returning wouldn't have been affected by border closures in the same way. I guess, the last question on that, because it, it, it's going to be an issue, history will have to look at this, but if you look at New Zealand, they had an experience with SARS like we did. Mm -hmm. Their chief medical officer said, this is a SARS moment and did not follow WHO. He went quicker and New Zealand had better outcomes. Should we have used our SARS knowledge and acted quicker instead of adhering to the WHO, which you know is fraught with controversy, China wasn't reporting transparently to them, should we have acted quicker and more independently? New Zealand did great, uh, but they're an island in the South Pacific a long way from anyone else. We share the largest, the longest undefended border, in, unmilitarized border in the world with the United States. What we did on border closures with the world and then two days later coordinating with the United States to ensure the free flow of goods and services that are essential, including pharmaceuticals and food, that was the right thing for Canada. Last question on vaccines, private companies are trying to get hold of some of these vaccines, maybe billionaires who own NHL teams. Uh, you've said that you know it's hard to stop them, but if they can do that, and, and you've got rich people getting vaccines before everyone else, isn't that essentially two-tier healthcare? Can't you guys stop that? Uh, what we can ensure is nothing any private company does is going to interfere in any way with the full rollout of free vaccines to all Canadians who want them. But rich people uh, nothing, could get them before no, other people. What, what the NHL is trying to do, what sports teams might try to do, uh, I, I, yeah, we'll, we'll see what they're actually able to do. Uh, what we know is the priority has been for vulnerable Canadians, not uh, you know, wealthy, fit athletes. Uh, the priority is to get it out to people who need it, and that's what this government is doing. All right, coming up. The heavy cost of support. The pandemic brought on the greatest economic challenge since the Great Depression. But did the government overspend when giving out billions of dollars in support to Canadians? Will Justin Trudeau ever promise to balance the books? 
We'll find out next as our feature interview with the Prime Minister continues. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. We've got your back. That's been Justin Trudeau's mantra for the past 10 months as the pandemic has ravaged the economy and people's health. The government has racked up $381 billion in deficit to provide support for families and businesses. Now, even the opposition has approved most of those support programs. But as the Prime Minister has said, more than 80% of the jobs lost in the pandemic have already returned. And according to Stats Canada, household savings have actually gone up considerably. So has disposable income. Why is that? Well, according to Stats Canada, the government has doled out more than $33 billion to people more than they lost. So should the government really head into 2021 promising to spend another $100 billion over the next three years as they plan to do? Is this really needed or should the Prime Minister tackle the deficit? Let's find out as we return to our feature-length interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Let's go to the economy. Um, massive deficits, $380 billion. Not a lot of debate about the need to support people. But, so I understand that. We all appreciate... Actually, there has been a bit of debate. The well, Conservatives there... saying that we shouldn't have moved as fast on people and we should instead move, uh, move uh, quicker on right. businesses. Uh, although Aaron O'Toole has said on Tula Mall as you know, he would have done similar support programs. My yeah, question on... Except there's no way a Conservative government would have supported artists the way he did, would have supported youth, would have supported we have no some idea. of the vulnerable I, I mean, Canadians. I, I, I'm not here to talk about to hypotheticals. hypotheticals. Okay, but uh, do you have any plans to bring the books back to balance, just on a deficit? Because you're helping people now. You and I both have kids. Our kids are going to be paying for this stuff. Will you... Is there a plan? Because since you've been elected... To be frank, you've never met one of your promises to bring it back to balance. Every promise on deficits has been broken. Well, I think people understand that this pandemic is unprecedented. And what the decision we took in the beginning was that we would have people's backs. We would do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to support Canadians. And that was made because it was the right thing to do. But what we're increasingly seeing around the world uh, by international economists and financial bodies saying it's actually the smart thing to do for the economy because the pandemic is going to cost people and economy money. There's no question about it. It's a hit to our economy. So the question is, who goes into debt? Do people uh, put it on their credit cards at 19% interest? Or does the federal government, which right now is borrowing at close to 0% interest, uh, take on that debt to make sure that people can hold through this pandemic? And what that leads to is when the pandemic is over, when vaccines are there and we're rebuilding, we actually have less to rebuild and more to restart because people have been able to hold. And that difference is going to be a huge advantage for Canada. I appreciate that. But in the economic update, there's a promise to spend yet another $100 billion on various programs. They are vague. Maybe it's childcare. We don't know. We'll see what happens maybe in a budget. But the truth is you've overshot the support in some ways. I'll just give you an example. Uh, there's been $23 billion in lost income overall. But households have got $56 billion in support, according to Stats Canada. In other words, there's $33 billion more you've given households than they've lost. So household savings is up, disposable income is up. So you've preloaded the gun. Why do you then have to now promise more stimulus if you've given people more than they've lost? I, I don't think 
Well, first of all, when you come out of a recession, you need stimulus to get things going again, to, to accelerate the return to balance. And yes, the fact that Canadians who would normally have gone out to a restaurant maybe uh, once a week uh, over the past uh, many months wouldn't do, didn't, haven't done that and therefore have saved a little money. I can tell you, when this is done and we're allowed to go back to our local favorite pub or restaurant, people are going to rush out and that's going to be a great part of the right. recovery. But that's not going to be enough. We need to make sure that we are there to support industries uh, that are retooling both because of the pandemic to be more digital, but also understanding the need to fight uh, climate change and be more environmentally conscious. There's lots of things that we're going to need to do to give that economy a boost so we can come roaring back okay. as quickly so, as so possible. Okay, so just last question on that. So any promise to get back to balance ever? Oh, absolutely. What this the, the contextual spending we're doing right now is because of COVID, but we are not adding uh, to the long-term pathway. We know that getting back uh, to a position of fiscal responsibly from a place of fiscal responsibility because we came into this pandemic in better economic situation than just about any other G7 country and we're still in a better economic position than any other country in the G7. A couple more things on the economy. The, pro the premiers want $28 billion a year then escalating for health transfers. No strings attached. It's our jurisdiction, the provinces say. So whether it's long-term care standards or whatever, pony up, they say to you. If you give health care transfers, will there be strings attached? I have already said that we recognize the need for increases in the long-term health transfers. There's no question about it. But Canadians also know that there are desperate needs in long-term care, for example, where uh, it's not just about money, it's about making sure we're properly sharing best practices, making sure that seniors in every corner of the country are just as protected as any senior in any other part of the country. That's part of the federal government's role is to make sure that there's fairness across the country. We're not going to tell provinces how they have to do it. It's their jurisdiction. But we do need to make sure that Canadians are treated fairly, particularly when it comes to the life and dignity of our elders. Can you just put something to rest? In a speech to the UN, you use this phrase, the Great Reset. It comes from the name of a book by the founder of the Economic Forum in Davos, a guy named Klaus Schwab. It's been picked up around the world and by the opposition as some kind of conspiracy of big government. Just tell us finally what you meant when you said the Great Reset. What I, is it? I didn't say Great Reset, first of all. So you're, you're already buying into uh, a lot of the controversy. I did talk about an opportunity to rethink and even reset our approach. Because we've seen the vulnerable people are even more vulnerable because of this COVID-19 crisis, but it has exposed things that have long been standing uh, as challenges, uh, whether it's homelessness, whether it's long-term care, uh, whether it's inequalities in our system, or whether it's the need to do a better job of fighting climate change. But you know what, Evan, you know very well, over the past five years, these are the things we've worked on. Uh, since we got elected in 2015, we created a million jobs and lifted a million people out of poverty. We focused on the first real plan to fight climate change on any government. Yes, there are things through this pandemic that we know we get to and need to do more of, and that's exactly what I'm focused on. Let's look back at the, the we controversy, because if not for the pandemic, it may have been a big one. You lost a finance minister over it. You know, ethics has been an Achilles heel for you. You know, the ethics commissioners, two violations, whether it's the Aga Khan's Island or the SNC-Lavalin affair, there's still an investigation into this. At that moment, knowing your family's relationship with, with the WE charity, why, why weren't you extra careful and just recuse yourself? Like after two hits on this, what was, how do you tell Canadians, 
I don't know why I, I, I blew this. First of all, uh, I came out right away and said, yeah, you know what, from an optics perspective, I probably should have recused myself and I'm sorry I didn't because when you make a mistake, you own up for it. But I think people need to understand the context we were in. I think people know the context we were in. We were trying to get as much help out to as many different people as we possibly could, as rapidly as we could. So we uh, gave money through the United Way uh, for uh, shelters. We gave uh, money through Food Banks Canada for food banks. We worked with all these different partners to help the most vulnerable. And the idea of giving uh, a grant to students who volunteered through the summer was a good idea. Um, it ended up not happening. Right. There were lots of other helps for students that got out from the student CERB uh, to more jobs. Uh, but uh, this was one that, yeah, I, I, I wish it hadn't happened that way. But we were focused on helping as many people as quickly as possible. And I think Canadians understand that. All right, coming up, how will the Prime Minister take on China in the new year as the two Michaels remain languishing in a prison for over two years? And will he battle with the incoming U.S. President Joe Biden over the Keystone XL pipeline? We talk about all that, plus... We get the Prime Minister's political blind spot. What will that be? We find out next as we continue our feature conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Stay right here with Question Period. Nothing has worked. For all the talk about working with China to get Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig out of that Chinese prison, nothing has worked to do it. They've languished behind bars for over two years and there's no end in sight. Will the Prime Minister get tougher on China? Will he ban Huawei from Canada's 5G network? And what about the new U.S. administration? Will a Biden presidency kill the Keystone XL pipeline? Let's find out as we return to our feature interview with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Let's talk about foreign relations, China. Two Michaels, over two years in prison. The, this is their third Christmas in yeah, prison. Hostage diplomacy. Yeah. Uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs. The crackdown in Hong Kong. Um, for almost, this is the third Christmas, it has not worked. Whatever we've done with China has not worked to release them. Are you going to, how are you going to get them free? Is there going to be a change of, of strategy with China? Will you finally say, you know what, we'll join the, the other Five Eyes companies and say no to Huawei. We can no longer trust them. What's your view on that? First of all, China has obviously changed significantly over the past few years. Uh, their posture around coercive diplomacy has been of concern, not just to Canada with uh, these, uh, these uh, Michaels who have been caught for three years, for, for two years, three Christmases, but countries around the world are concerned about this and are uh, shifting their postures on it. And that's why we are so uh, fortunate as Canada that we have so many allies who have stood up not just for the values and the principles that we hold deal but actually specifically spoken to China about these two uh, Canadians are who are detained. Like, we are going to continue to work and you know Evan that I can't talk about everything we're doing because it is a delicate process but we have demonstrated over the past many years a tremendous level of success in bringing Canadians home who are stuck in difficult situations overseas and we are not letting up on but bringing home these But you could say no to Michaels. Huawei. Like, wh that's taken years. Why not? Oh, that's a decision that needs to be based on the best expert of our, our, uh, our, uh, our specialists and intelligence agencies, and we're working with them on that. Do you think uh, China's committing a genocide on the Uyghurs? We are extremely 
concerned with their behavior around the Uyghurs. I've brought it up repeatedly whenever I've had a conversation with Chinese leadership. Uh, we note very carefully the UN reports, the uh, Canadian parliamentary reports. Uh, we do need to continue to stand up strongly. Joe Biden, the new president, wants to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, what are you going to do to stop him from doing that? Because I know you support it. I have been advocating for that pipeline as an important part of a, an, a continental energy strategy for many years. I would, when I was uh, first leader of the Liberal Party seven years ago, I went down to uh, pitch to a room full of Democrats in Washington how important uh, the, our, our links were and how important the Keystone XL pipeline is. We're going to continue to work on that. I think one of the things that we see an opportunity with uh, President-elect Biden is to work even closer together right. on energy and environment issues. And I brought it up with him in our first conversation. We're going to keep working on that together. Donald Trump's ending uh, his term, uh, whether he likes it or not, uh, when he put the National Guard out and tear gassed those peaceful protesters, you were asked about, you had 21 seconds of silence. Okay? No, everyone's tried to interpret that. Now that he's leaving, uh, you don't have to be silent. Was Donald Trump a danger to democracies in the world? Donald Trump remains president until, uh, until January 20th. And uh, between, between now and then and beyond, my focus always needs to be on doing what is defending Canada's interests and Canadians' interests, from steel and aluminum producers to successfully renegotiating a better NAFTA deal for Canada. Okay, here's some rapid-fire questions. Hardest moment of the last year? Uh, the, ten, the 13, 14,000 deaths uh, of Canadians to COVID-19. Your biggest weakness as a leader? Uh, there's, it's partly your, your job to, to, to say it, I guess. Um, Maybe what's your blind spot? Focusing on, uh, on elements uh, that I think are obvious that I don't think about political consequences on. Health crisis in BC, the, uh, the other health crisis that opioid we don't talk crisis. about is opioid. Yeah. The mayor of Vancouver, Kenny Stewart, wants small possession of uh, any drug to be decriminalized. Would you support that? Our health minister is working directly with the BC health minister on initiatives like that. We have the power to do that in local places. I don't think large-scale decriminalization of, uh, of drugs is where we are yet. Worst decision you've made as prime minister, best decision you've made. Uh, best decision I made was making sure we would have Canadians back through this pandemic. That is, that was the core of everything. Uh, worst decision, I don't, I don't think about that. Will Canada be exporting oil in 20 years? Yes. I think, I think even as we uh, transform our economy, there will still be a need for the next few decades for fossil fuels in various forms. We just need to get a lot better at decarbonizing them and lean on the experts in the oil and gas industry and the expertise of energy workers to help us transform our economy for the long term. Does free prior and informed consent in the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People give nations, let's say the wet sweat, a veto over natural resources projects? The Canadian courts, including the Supreme Court, have already answered that. The answer is no. But they do require meaningful consultation and cooperation, and that's what we've always demonstrated. The Senate is the first legislative body to have gender parity, but you get to appoint 11 more senators. Are you going to make sure that it will continue to have gender parity and make that equal? That's the easiest question you've asked me. Uh, we're going to ensure that, uh, that uh, gender parity remains at the center of everything this government does.
last question for you, Prime Minister. Um, you said it, 13,800 Canadians are not going to have their loved ones with them, and, and it's counting. Um, it's going to be a lonely Christmas for a lot of people, and um, it's very difficult to have any words for it. Who will you miss most at this Christmas? <laughs> Other than my dad, who I always miss every Christmas, uh, my mom. Uh, my mom, who is the, the, the best in the world at Christmas turkey and mixing the turnips and the carrots, which somehow makes both of them turnips better is easy, but carrots better with turnips in them is amazing. My mom is awesome at Christmas time, and even though she's two hours away, I'm not going to see her at Christmas, and that hurts. But it's what all Canadians are doing, making tough decisions to be there for each other so we can celebrate many more Christmases together. I agree. Um just last thing, are you going to get that vaccine? Because yes. some political leaders say that we should get it first. I know you're going to get it. But should, should political leaders get it first or are you going to wait your turn? When, when the, the line uh, comes to healthy 40-year-olds to get vaccinated, uh, I will knock you out of the way on, on my, in my uh, urgency to get that vaccine. But we need to get to uh, the most vulnerable first. And every step of the way, it's scientists and experts who are making the recommendations on who should get it first. And we'll listen to them like we always have. Good to see you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thanks for this. Appreciate and mostly, it. Happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year. Happy New happy Year. Happy New Year. We, we deserve that. We need it. Yeah. Thanks, Prime Minister. Thanks, Evan. All right, there it is, our feature-length interview with the Prime Minister. Coming up next, the road ahead. Justin Trudeau, as you saw, is unapologetic about his big spending promises and on how fast Canadians are getting these coveted vaccines. So what are his biggest challenges heading into 2021? And what do frontline healthcare workers need to continue the fight? The Scrum is next with CTV infectious disease specialist Dr. Abdi Sharkawi and former NDP leader Tal Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period. I want to take this opportunity to remind Canadians that we are not at the end of living with COVID-19. Rather, we are at the beginning of the end. As welcome as news of a first vaccine for Canadians may be, it is crucial for Canadians to continue following the guidance of their local public health authorities. The light and the dark, look, that's the end of 2020. Cautious hope that this pandemic could end as the trickle of vaccines rolling out to Canadians becomes a steady stream over the next couple of months. The Prime Minister says 125,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine will arrive every week in January. More than 400,000 doses are arriving ahead of schedule. But there are still massive challenges ahead, especially if other countries start vaccinating at a far higher rate. Could vaccine envy take over here? And what about the economy? What are the challenges ahead as the Prime Minister promises to keep the spending going well into 2021? Does he really need to? Let's bring in the scrum to digest all this. Joyce Napier is our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Dr. Abdu Sharkawi is the CTV News Infectious Disease Specialist. And Tom Mulcair, the former NDP leader and CTV News political commentator. Great to see you all as we come to the end of this horrible year. Tom, let, let me just start with you. As you saw the interview we did with the Prime Minister, uh, he admitted, you know, Canada was slow on PPE. He was unrepentant on other measures like not closing the borders earlier. Fast forward to now, how will he be judged in terms of his pandemic response? What are the challenges? I believe Mr. Trudeau is going to get high marks, especially for his reaction, which was rapid. He overruled the bureaucracy that would do its normal thing, which is to put in place programs that are very tightly regimented. You have to make sure you meet so many criteria. He looked at the first week 
and said, this is not going to work. And he simply started rolling out the money, knowing there would be a certain amount of cheating around the edges by some people, but that most Canadians, as we know, have barely one or two weeks salary in the bank. We are very indebted as a society. The average family didn't have money. He rolled out the money. It was They were able to put groceries on the table, and everybody gets to worry about the rest after. I think he'll always get top marks for that. With regard to the vaccines, it has been a bit of an up and down, but so far, I think that he, the rabbit that he pulled out of his hat when he was able to go ahead of his own predictions, I think he's even going to come out smelling roses on that one. Interesting. Joyce, uh, in your view, biggest successes and maybe failures going uh, so far and then going ahead? Well, I think his, the, the biggest success of this government is to understand early on in this pandemic that if you shut down the economy, you've got to give people the money to survive. Um, and that's what they did. And I think that that was absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm not sure that their clawback now is as brilliant at a time when, in fact, you know, these are people who made less, $5,000 or less, um, and you go back and ask them for the money. I mean, these are not uh, huge salaries. Uh, this is not a huge amount of money. And, you know, this is money that people need it because they cannot work, because you can't get jobs nowadays. It's not that easy. And the economy won't pick up that fast. Uh, these vaccines, it's, you said it's, it's a sort of like a trickling drip, drip, drip. How fast will it be before people, before life gets back to normal? So there will be more spending. And I think the, the, the smart communication strategy was to get us used to not a couple of billion dollars, but tens of billions of dollars. And now hundreds of billions of dollars became, yeah, so another hundred billion. So, so, so that, in a way, I think, um, and, and we don't, we'll only know when we get out of the tunnel whether that was actually the right antidote, but right. I, I sense that maybe it was. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty expensive tunnel so far. Dr. Shortcarry, let's talk about the other tunnel and, and to pick up on Joyce's metaphor there, uh, the health tunnel. We're still in it for all the light at the end of the tunnel. Man, you're working in it every day. Um, what's it like now? I, I, I mean, we got some dark months ahead. What message does the PM need to send right now? I think the message is that we shouldn't take anything for granted. You know, this pandemic has really exposed the fact that our healthcare system at the best of times really doesn't operate at optimal levels, uh, whether you're talking about efficiency or frankly safety in terms of people who are marginalized or are disproportionately affected by the other social determinants of health. And so I think we've all uh, got to take stock of this and, and move forward recognizing that our healthcare system is not infinite in terms of its resources and that the public health messaging is going to have to be very strong. It's going to have to be very consistent. And especially when it comes to vaccine education and engagement around the safety and effectiveness of vaccines, that's something that really needs to be a priority so that people take the vaccine and do it without too many doubts or fear guiding them. Yeah, it's interesting. The premiers want $28 billion more a year, every year in a health transfer, Tom, and that raises a lot of economic questions. The prime minister told me he's unapologetic about the big spending, even though he gave Canadians, according to Stats Canada, $33 billion more than they lost. What are his challenges then in terms of this promise to spend another $100 billion over the next three years on more stimulus in the great recovery to come? What has he got to watch for there? Well, I think that that's his ballot question. He goes to the voting public in six months, eight months, and says, look, this is what we did. This is our background. This is who we are. We're liberals. We think that the money should have flowed to you and your family, and we're not going to stop that. 
right away and hit a wall. And he'll say that the Conservatives are all about austerity. That'll be his game plan. So I think that that might work out in Mr. Trudeau's favour, unless there's something in the budget numbers that becomes so catastrophic, it seems that we won't be able to ever dig ourselves out of this mm -hmm. hole. But so far, our overspending, compared to normal years, is on a par with what's happening in other G7 countries. So we're not out there alone. Everybody's going to have to go through this. The word reset has all, all of a sudden been popular, and we're simply talking about that. We know that these economies are going to come back stronger than ever. Mr. Trudeau has a green plan. His climate plan, frankly, if he ever does it, it is actually very inspiring. And we'll see. I think he's just laying down the track, seven for the next election campaign. All right, I've got to leave it there. I, I th Joyce and Tom and Dr. Sharkawi, first of all, thanks to all three of you. Great to see you, Dr. Sharkawi. I know for all of us, thanks for your tireless work on the front lines. I know it's not over. You probably don't get a break, uh, and, and we will. But thank you so much. Coming up next, heading to the polls. Canadians could be heading to the polls in the new year in what will likely be a referendum on the government's pandemic management. As the scrum just said, are there any opportunities to put the government on the back foot? What challenges do the opposition face? The scrum convenes next and our special guest CTV pollster, Nick Nanos. Stay right here with Question Period. Welcome back to Question Period. So Canadians will likely head to the polls in the new year. That's about the normal lifespan of a minority government. The ballot box question, most likely, who do you trust to lead in the post-pandemic recovery? With the COVID vaccination effort now underway, slowly across the country, will the next election be a referendum on the rollout or on the recovery plan? What are the challenges facing not only the government, but the opposition parties as we head into 2021. Let's bring back the scrum to dig into this. Joining us on this round, our friend Tonda McCharles, senior reporter with the Toronto Star in Ottawa. Annie Bergeron-Oliver, who has decamped temporarily to Washington. She's a CTV News Parliamentary Bureau reporter. And our special guest for this round is our other friend, CTV News pollster and Nanos Research CEO, Nick Nanos. Uh, great to have everybody here as we approach the Christmas season. Nick, let's just get the big picture from you. Um, at the end of 2020, uh, in the pandemic, where are the parties? How, how are people reacting as the big issue and how are they judging how the government has handled this? Well, you know, what it's been about is the Liberals bazooka blasting fiscal stimulus out there. What we've seen is that numbers, the Liberal numbers go up as there's concern about the pandemic and also stimulus going up. The question will be, once the stimulus runs out, once Canadians, once some Canadians find out that they have to pay taxes or have to pay it back, whether, what I'll say, the Liberal advantage dissipates. But right now, the wind is in the sail of the Liberals and they're even in majority territory if there were an election held now. That's interesting, Tonda. What do you make of it? I mean, no surprise, big spending usually helps an uh, incumbent government. But what are the biggest issues or challenges facing the government? Well, facing the government, look, that, the, all the measures that have been rolled out and now, you know, the upcoming clawbacks, as it were, have to be very even-handed. The government can't afford to see big companies, uh, rich organizations like golf clubs use what was supposed to be uh, pandemic aid money to pad their bottom line, to give, put them in a surplus, to not do what it was intended to do, which is to hire Canadians. And in clawing back money, they have to be seen to be fair to ordinary working Canadians, self-employed Canadians, vis-a-vis uh, -vis these other big, big groups, big companies, who seem to actually have been doing pretty well during the pandemic. So a huge challenge there for the government, because they can't afford to muck it all up. They have to get all aspects, the economic 
economic aid and the health aid right. Uh, but look, I think that there's also a challenge here for the opposition because we've heard Trudeau, sp he spoke to you in that interview, he, his year-end interview with you, like he's addressing uh, his challenge with the Conservatives, trying to paint them as against all help for Canadians. But that's not the case. The Conservatives have said they agree with helping Canadians. Right. But the challenge for Aaron O'Toole is to define himself as what else is he for? Yeah, and I'm going to come back to that. I want to swing back to that. But Annie, you're in Washington. Uh, look, there's going to be a new president in the new year. Uh, the Joe Biden administration, they want to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. There's China. Just let, let's talk about the challenges uh, on the foreign affairs side that will face Justin Trudeau. Well, you mentioned it. So China is obviously a big one. Look at Huawei. You know, U.S. President Donald Trump a while back said they weren't going to do Huawei. Our other five ICE partners have said they're not going to, and Canada still has not made a decision on that. And in the near future, that's going to be something that Canada needs to decide on. Also, just our relationship with China. You know, Canada needs to be in close ties with the Americans and kind of moving in lockstep if we want to try to get these Canadians out. Because obviously, what's you know, the government has been doing so far and trying to get allies on board and, you know, highlighting that the, what China did with the arbitrary detentions of the two Michaels was wrong isn't really working. So they're going to need the United States more so than ever. But I think the really big challenge for Canada and the U.S. moving forward is going to be COVID. You know, they really need to be also moving in lockstep and getting this, um, you know, collaboration done properly in order for this virus to not be as big of a threat. But for, you know, for Canada, the, the challenge is going to be we're not vaccinated at the same rate as they are in the United States and how will we move forward with the border reopenings we could potentially get to a position where the Americans are ready they have more people vaccinated and want to open the border before we're ready or vice versa so that's going to be a big challenge yeah. and of course Keystone XL pipeline Biden has talked about wanting to pull that um, approval for it to construct it's going to be very unlikely that he's going to backtrack and then reverse which is what mm. Trudeau wants yeah, that, that's something to watch. Um, Nick, let me go back to you and pick up on what Tonda was saying earlier about the challenges for the opposition. Um, what, 2021, they're going to face an election, most likely. Uh, what are their biggest challenges from the Conservatives, NDP, and uh, you know, the Bloc and the Greens? I think their biggest challenge is to try to not have an election in the first quarter of 2021. Because I would hazard to say that even though the Liberals have the advantage today, there are storm clouds on the horizon on a number of fronts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Aaron O'Toole has been signaling already that he's not in a rush to have an election. I think once we get past April, all these things will come to roost. The Biden administration and rough, uh, rough ride on the environment. China, because you know what, Evan? On the China file, we're not in the front seat. We're not in the passenger seat. We're in the trunk, realistically, because we're on the receiving end of this and we're not even in control of our destiny on that. And I think that the challenge will be for opposition parties to try to get through the, get through the spring so that there can be an election when there's probably, it'll be much more difficult for the Liberals with a lot more hot issues that they'll be having to manage. Yeah, and Tonda, Aaron O'Toole tried to redefine what it means to be a conservative post Andrew Scheer. Didn't have a great week in the past week. That video from Ryerson from Press Progress emerged where he was trying to score political points on residential schools, of all things. He factually was inaccurate when he said that residential schools, and I'm quoting him, were, quote, meant to try and provide an education. It became a horrible program that harmed people. We've got to learn from that, but we're not helping anyone, he said, by misrepresenting the past. He immediately walked that back, didn't apologize, but walked it back because he was so factually wrong. Mm -hmm. What does that say about him and what he's going to do as a leader, his challenges ahead? 
Well, look, these are big questions. I mean, he might like to talk about to certain audiences about, oh, cancel culture and free speech, but actually, in the broader scheme of the national political discussion, there's a big discussion going on about systemic racism in this country and how indigenous people were treated by the institutions of this country. And he seems not to have found his feet in that discussion. And so I would suggest, you know, look, for a lot of young voters, these are big questions. Look at the number of people who turned out in Canadian streets uh, as a, a, along with all the Black Lives Matters protesters trying to press upon political leaders that this is a, an issue for, right. that matters to them. So I think O'Toole has to define himself on big pieces like that, the environment. Um, what would he do, have done differently in the pandemic? What would he do differently going forward? How will he handle an economic recovery? Policy, policy, policy is his challenge and that's where his, I think, definitional uh, yeah, ch challenge lies. What does he stand for? Who is Aaron O'Toole? And just real quick, Annie, on, on the progressive side, the, the NDP and the Greens, what do they have to do to reposition themselves in 2021? Well, I think the big challenge for the NDP is to ensure that they're not outflanked by the Liberals. I think a lot of people view Justin Trudeau as the most progressive Liberal leader the country has ever seen. You look at the most recent fiscal update. He laid the groundwork for a national uh, daycare system. He also announced basically what looks like a universal basic income through the CERB payments, and that's going to be something that's going to be hard to backtrack. It's also something the NDP has wanted. Same with the national daycare child care program. Um, and so there's a lot of programs here that's going to be really hard for Justin Trudeau to pull back on that kind of take a bite out of the NDP support. So I think the challenge for the NDP is to try to stay relevant and to try to convince voters that a vote for an NDP isn't wasted, considering a lot of their policies, like sick, sick leave, for example, are right. sort of being absorbed and eaten up by the Liberals. Well, guys, I got to leave it there. It's going to be a wild year ahead, and it was a tough year behind us. So I got to wish Tonda McCharles, Annie Bergeron Oliver, uh, Nick Danos, first of all, thanks for being here, and, and a Merry Christmas to you and your loved ones. Just a final note before we go, and this affects all of us here on the program and our team that works on CTV Question Period. Covering politics sometimes mean you can lose sight of the personal impact these high-level debates seem to have, all the policy and the partisanship, but it matters. There are 13,800 Canadians who are missing loved ones on this holiday season because of the pandemic, because of COVID, and our hearts go out to them. My family now is part of them. This past Thursday, we lost my uncle Charlie Zoltz to COVID-19. He was the most generous, engaged, loving man. He leaves behind my Aunt Sue and my, uh, his three kids, my cousins, and eight grandkids, and a very close extended family who loved him. It was fast, and it was terrible. We will miss him. It's a terrible reminder to my family about the costs, the real cost of this pandemic. I know there are many others who have lost an Uncle Charlie, an aunt, a family member, a friend. Just take care. Take care of this Christmas. Try to be joyful. Savor your loved ones. Stay safe. We'll be back here in seven short days. And thank you so much for watching. <laughs>